1: Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a
0: bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay, And I'm Mark DeVoe. And before we dive into this very, very special episode, we would like to say a big, big thank you to everyone, all our patrons who've supported us uh, and all of our Bestseller Academy members that keep this podcast rolling. We're so grateful to all of you. And if you'd like to join them, just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to find out about all the goodies you can get by supporting this podcast. Mr. Say, this is a very special podcast, isn't it? It is indeed. I remember, um, I remember, (laughs) Will you tell tell everyone, I remember when we recorded our very first episode, episode, I think it was zero, zero. Zero, zero, yes. And it was the preview about what we were going to be doing for this podcast. I mean, Mm. and I remember saying these words I said these words I said so the idea is we're going to try and write and publish a book within one year and you went one year do you remember that yes and so today (laughs) I think we both need to stand back and go seven years (laughs) seven years isn't it mad I can't believe it yeah Yeah. I lost count didn't I like two weeks ago I thought it was six kept saying six years (laughs) (laughs) isn't that mad where has the time
1: gone uh well it's gone where my receding hairline has gone that's where it's gone (laughs) (laughs) i tried to look back at those early episodes full head of hair um i don't know it's it's uh it's whizzed by but um you know it's uh cracky 470 something episodes what are we up to now uh (laughs) kind of lost count of that
0: but um yeah it's it's kind of mad uh, well we've we've got to celebrate our seventh birthday we thought it would be fun to do an absolutely incredible episode with an incredible author, um, but we also want to celebrate the last seven years as well. So uh, we decided that towards the end of the year we're going to do an episode where Mark and I are going to look back on some of our favourite moments from the past. And there's a lot to get, a lot to pick mm-hmm. from. Um, so so look out for that episode. It's going to be coming soon, folks. But this week we want to celebrate um, with an absolutely incredible author. But before we get to that. We should talk a little bit about um, some of the fun things coming up in your world in the next uh, couple of weeks.
1: Yes, if you're around in London at the end of October, I'm going to be at the MCM Comic Con uh, the whole weekend, 27th to 29th of October. Now, normally I might do one or two panels. Uh, I'm actually going to be there the whole weekend. I'm going to have a table. I'm going to be selling my books, signing them, and all sorts of stuff. So I am going to. Be, I will be doing a couple of panels, but I'm going to be there the whole weekend. And basically, if you buy all four of the books, you get a free bar of chocolate. Can't say fairer than that. Uh, and I've also bought a special new sort of spandex tablecloth with the Witches of Woodville oh. I'm glad, you so said, I'm
0: glad you said tablecloth there. <laughs> I was really worried for a minute. I thought, you're not going all 1970s T-Rex on us, are you, Mr. Stade? <laughs> <laughs> So, oh well you know the day is young
1: um oh. so yeah uh, if you're around at the comic con come and say hello it's gonna be really good fun uh and um it's i mean i haven't had a table there for years actually um so i'm really looking forward to it i always had a good time because you can sort of relax it's not like yeah. a signing where there's a queue and it's like there's your book bugger off it's like yeah, let's have a chat let's get to know each other kind
0: of thing so it's, it's good looking forward to it very very much yeah and you had a fun event last week in maidstone as well
1: yeah, well, it is the Maidstone Literary Festival, the inaugural Maidstone Lit Fest, which I really, really enjoyed. So, I uh, did a couple of events. Did one with Julie Wassman, Lisa Cutz in the evening, which was terrific in the old, the old palace uh, in um, in Maidstone, which was great. You don't normally get to go in there uh, if, uh, if you remember the public, so which what, was terrific. What
0: is it? Is it like a? Thing, it's, it's
1: basically an old uh, Tudor mansion, essentially, uh, and it's 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 where you go to register deaths, births, and you know, and oh, and yeah, and all that like the stuff. Leatherhead, um, yeah, the white the white mansion the house, Leatherhead, yeah, 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 yeah. which is one. also the library. um yeah. Uh, which which was great. But in the morning, uh, me and Kelly Weeks, and Kelly Wakes has been on the podcast before we did a deep dive on marketing. We had a kind of a double bill. I did a presentation called You've Written Your Book, Now What?, which talks about all the different options, and Kelly talks about marketing. And in between... The two uh, events, all, I mean, full house, you know, it was great. Loads of great authors there. The, the, they were all, the writers were all sort of swapping email addresses. They were forming their own writers group in the room. It was brilliant. <laughs> it was so, so good. So thanks to everyone who
0: came along for that. It was really, really good fun. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Well, listen, I I can't wait any longer, Mark. This is such an incredible author we have on this week's show. I think we should dive straight in. Tell us about this week's guest. Well, Heather Morris is a
1: native of New Zealand, now a resident in Australia. And for several years, uh, she worked in a large public hospital in Melbourne, and she studied and wrote screenplays, one of which was optioned. But in 2003, Heather was introduced to an elderly gentleman who a friend told her might just have a story worth telling. And that's when she met Lale Sokolov, and it changed both their lives. And their friendship led to Heather's debut novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which has sold over six million copies worldwide and has been adapted for TV, which will be released in 2024. She has a new novel, Sisters Under the Rising Sun, which uh, transports the reader to uh, the women in the Japanese POW camps in World War Two. And it's another incredibly powerful story. I can think of no better way To celebrate seven years of this podcast than with Heather Morris. Her writing, her attitude to life and her work just embodies everything that we love about writers and it was such a privilege to speak with her. Uh, We discuss why she craves a personal connection in her stories, how she works with a researcher and how one of the biggest selling novels of the 21st century started with a conversation over coffee.
0: Absolutely brilliant. Well let's dive in And have a listen with Mark chatting with the absolutely incredible Heather Morris. Heather Morris, welcome to the Best
1: Sell Experiment. How are you today?
2: I'm brilliant. All the better for being here with you, Mark.
1: (laughs) Wonderful stuff. Well, we're here to talk about your remarkable new novel, um, Sisters Under the Rising Sun. And this is the story of Nora and Nesta and a whole group of women who, who find hope in the darkest of places. Tell us about this book and where you first heard their story.
2: Look, Mark, it's about 500 women. I've had to reduce it down to the two ca- characters of Nesta and Nora and a handful of others, mm-hmm. but we must never lose sight of the fact that there were in that camp 500 women and some 40 children. To be able to tell all of their stories was not possible. But in choosing the two people who I decided to to focus on and to tell the stories through them, while there were personal reasons for Nesta, I knew a little bit, living down in Australia, I'd heard a little bit about Australian nurses who had been held captive by the Japanese during the Second World War. Didn't know much about it. I'd finished my last book and uh, my publisher and I sort of muttering about, well, what's next, that always comes along. I was having lunch with a couple of ex-colleagues who I used to work with, and I thought, okay, look, you're my vintage. I'll just run this storyline past you and see what kind of feedback I get. So when I said to them, "Have you heard about the Australian nurses, etc.?" and one of them sat there and she got a big grin on her face and she said, "One of those nurses was my third cousin, Nesta James. Wow. I know her story. I know their story. I have what I crave for all my stories: a personal connection." Mm. And that was finding the family of Sister Nesta James.
1: Wonderful, because in the past you've been able. To speak directly to the subjects of your stories. And in this case, you're speaking to the descendants of the real Nora and Nesta. So, how different was that? What what were the challenges to overcome with that?
2: Well, the main challenge was, in a lot of regards, that the family didn't know the whole story. They knew snippets, they knew bits, they had it the roundabout. And so, it required, of course, an extensive research, and that's fine. I like doing that. Well, actually, truth be tell, I actually employ a researcher. She does it, finds it, and then I read it. But in the case of Finestra and the other nurses who made it back from that terrible, terrible time, the Australian army had recorded testimonies from them. And we found buried in the bowels of the Australian War Museum written testimonies, which were great, but we also found a couple of audio testimonies and one of those was nesta herself so i had two hours of nesta being interviewed by a terrible interviewer oh my (laughs) gosh i was getting oh gosh they really blew it they blew the chance to get from this incredible woman's story yeah more in depth but it was enough it was enough for me to now hear her voice, hear her her uh, accent, hear, which was a combination of Welsh and Australian. It's quite beautiful. Uh, and hear the phrases she used. So I did get it kind of from her, but in a very roundabout way.
1: Wow, that's incredible. Um, I think the telling comment there is you said it was buried in the bells because we, we, we hear, and rightly so, the the stories of the men in in those POW camps. But I was sort of racking my brains. I, I grew up watching Tenko, which yeah. I think was probably the only representation I've ever seen of the women in those camps. So this is this is a story that's been largely overlooked, isn't it?
2: Yes, and where this one differs, uh, Tenko was uh, Margot Turner, uh, this incredible uh, mm-hmm. British lady whose story was told through Tenko. Uh, this story is a different camp, and it has that, that com- different complexity, or also complexity, the component of the Australian nurses. And while that may not mean a lot here uh, in Australia and New Zealand, I'm hoping now that the book is out there Mm. that that, those two countries, because there's Kiwi ladies there as well, one in particular, Audrey Owen, that they will now learn about their own people, their own women and their survival. But, of course, the British were there and the Dutch nuns were there and the Dutch colonial women were there and and the Chinese and the Singapore ladies. Uh, Yeah, there was a great little United Nations in there really.
1: What was the biggest um, surprise that came out of the research that you looked in? What was there something completely unexpected that 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 maybe changed the course of the story?
2: Look, it didn't necessarily change the course of the story, but it certainly changed how I felt about it. Uh, yes, I'm finding these testimonies and they're buried. And I'm going, okay, so they've been told, kind of, but why aren't they known about? And so when I started looking here in the UK, trying to work out, well, what's been documented about these British women and what happened when they came home? And then I started getting bloody angry because I found out, and this was the shock for me, how those women were, you can't say treated, they were ignored, they were sent away, they were told, no hero's welcome for you, stay on the boat. The hero's welcome is for all the men coming home, not you. Tell your family to stay away. We don't want you being in any way uh, celebrated along with those male prisoners of war that they came back with. And that's just disgusting, Mark.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay.
2: Crikey. Yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> suck-up, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, but that... Tell us, I, I love the musical element to this, and mm. music is very difficult to write about. I think uh, people attribute this to Frank Zappa, who says writing about music is like dancing about architecture. How do you, how <laughs> did you write about the music, mu- the musical component of this wonderful story?
2: Anderson, hey, if you're trying to intimidate me by having those guitars in the background, <laughs> indicating automatically that you are musical <laughs> and I am not, I'm not, I'm uh, not. You've done, you've done it very well. <laughs> Uh, so, Because I'm not, but yes, uh, in terms of the music, uh, it, it underpins their entire survival. It underpins the, the difference in being always absolutely down in the squalor of the mud and the disease for these women. It lifts them beyond that. It takes them above the treetops that they're surrounded by and it lifts their souls. And, I mean, look, I'm putting it out there. I am not a religious person. The souls thing is not what I uh, could talk about. But for me, I've read so much about them that they did say their souls left them and that left them above that tree line, and there where the birds flew free. And that's how it happened, folks. (laughs) That was the power of music. And Nora Chambers... And an English missionary called Margaret Dryberg, they started that with choirs and Nora took it that step further in making her vocal orchestra.
1: Fantastic. Oh, I, I, that sounded perfectly musical to me, Heather. Don't worry about it. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> now, your novels, they, they very often fictionalise real people and real history. And obviously you've had conversations with the people who lived through that history or, or descendants of people who lived through that history. But obviously with fiction, we need to be in the room. We need to get inside their heads. We, there needs to be dialogue that mm. you're inventing. Where's, how do you make the distinction between those, those kind of things? When do you feel like, Oh gosh, am I crossing the line here? Am I inventing? Where do you draw that kind of line between reality and, and where you're fictionalizing something?
2: Well, in terms of the dialogue, yeah, look, my books are all about conversations. Mm. Uh, if I can write a whole page of just conversation, I'm going to do that before I go switting in just descriptive uh, narrative of the colour of the trees and the flowers and the birds. Um, I'd rather have somebody say to him, don't you love the beautiful pink of that that flower? Uh, in terms of putting words into their mouths, with Nestor, I didn't have to do that too much because I had her words. mm mm-hmm. I had them both from the written thing that she'd test me she'd done, but also I'd had them hearing them from her own uh, mouths. And with Nora, it was different because I didn't meet Nora, but who I did meet was the little girl who appears on page one of the book, Sally, her daughter. And so to find her on the island of Jersey and to be able to go and visit her and spend time with her and get from her, her mom and her dad, and to be able to tell this story with her blessing, when I first met her last year, she was an eighty-seven-year-old beautiful woman. Wow, um, was such a treat. So I kind of—I've had firsthand in terms of, you know, well, if you read the book or you'll read it, Sally was on Singapore Island with them, and that's the story begins with her being put on a boat, hopefully to freedom and safety. And for her mom and dad left behind in Singapore to not know for four years, did she meet the same fate that they had with her Mm. ship being bombed? And for that little girl to not know well that she was told her parents were dead. Wow! And I found her alive due to the power of having a brilliant researcher. They're (laughs) worth their gold or every dollar you've earned.
1: Well, let's talk about that because. How does that relationship work? you You sit down with the researcher and say, "Look, these are the things I'm looking for. Do, how do you brief them? How do you brief a researcher when you're you're first sitting down with them?
2: Well, I was only going to tell the story of the nurses. that was that was a because that's what I knew. that's what I'm finding my research about, and I'm finding all these other testimonies, and a couple of books, a couple of the nurses had wrote memoirs that had long disappeared, but I found them, and or, well, my researcher did. Uh, but <laughs> from them, and the testimonies I was getting, there was this one name that kept appearing. They're talking about the nurses, the nurses, the nurses, Nora Chambers, Nora Chambers, Nora Chambers. So I had to say to, to Kat, my researcher, in chance, find me anything you can on Nora Chambers. And that was not easy, folks, and she kept coming up, uh, not nothing. She, she's not out there. Until one day she dug so deep she found this <laughs> tiny little article in a church newspaper on the island of Jersey, announcing that Nora Chambers was taking over the choir at that church. And that was printed in, I think, 1960-something. Wow. I rang that church and I said to the person who answered the phone, I understand you once had a parishioner called Nora Chambers. And I got someone who said, yes, we did. I said, look, I'm presuming Nora is no longer with us. And she said, no, she died many years ago. I said, Okay. Uh, Is there any chance there's anybody on the island or you who know anything about her daughter, Sally? Because I didn't know Sally's surname. I didn't know if she'd married and had a a different surname, Mm. so I couldn't track her. And she simply said, oh, Sally, you'll be at services here on Sunday. Do you want me to give her a message? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, please. So that's how we found uh, Sally. Sally Conway is now, and uh, and her son Sean. Nora's, I mean, yeah, Nora's grandson. Fantastic!
1: It's like panning for gold, isn't it? You just can't keep. You just got to keep sifting and sifting and sifting until you find those little, those little shiny nuggets, don't
2: you? Yeah, but then you've got to stop. Because you realise that if you keep doing it, you'll never write anything. There's so much out there. And you you then run the risk, and trust me, I've had it happen to me, (laughs) of saying that your story is lacking something, it's incorrect in something, the memory of your person is not right, it doesn't marry with others. And you go, you know what, if I was to research everything written, found in uh, museums and books everywhere around the world, I'd still be just reading, not writing. So I get to a point where I go, I've got enough. There may be a, a lot of brilliant other vignettes out there related to the story. I've got enough. Wonderful Walk stuff. Away. Wonderful. Now
1: I'm talking to you. Now it's a wonderful conversation. You're very enthusiastic and optimistic and full of passion about uh, your your writing. But your writing deals with some very very traumatic subjects. How are you not? weighed down by the things that you've read about and the things that you've written about. How do you make that separation
2: between what you're writing about and the, the person I'm seeing here? I, um, I have to credit my occupation, my career, what I was doing before I started writing, Not, not knowing that I never knew I was going to be a writer. Gosh, that was uh, never on the cards for me. This is all accidental. Um, but it's not a bad accident. <laughs> But for 20-odd years, uh, I worked in the social work department of a large public hospital in Melbourne. Where Every day, the people I interacted with who came there were only there because something tragic or traumatic had happened to them. Now, yes, their trauma and tragedy was what we called acute, whereas the people I've written about, theirs is a historic, which you know, plays out and differently. But trauma and tragedy are still the same. Now, of course caring for people under those circumstances lesson number one self-care 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 and you know that the trauma and the pain and the tragedy and the grief that you're hearing is not yours and while it can try and transfer which is what it's called from them onto you you know that if you're going to be in any way helpful to that person who's talking with you and who you're listening to because that's your job shut up and listen then you can't allow it to transfer fully onto you, and that's just a general. All healthcare professionals learn how to practice self-care.
1: And listeners, if if this is something you want to know more about, um, Heather has written a fantastic nonfiction book called "Listen Well," and that talks about the role that listening has played in your life and your career. And one of the most extraordinary things is. Apparently you don't make notes and you don't record anything. You are, you're not scribbling, you're not distracted. You're just focused on that one one person. Can, can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, well, if you bring a notebook and a pen um, or a recorder into a conversation, you've actually introduced a third party. And it's a distraction. You know that from the hospital. You're talking to a patient. If you start writing notes, you can immediately see them change. Um, they want to see what you're writing. They become guarded. Oh, do, do I say this? She's going to write it down. What's, where's it going to go? Uh, so you just don't do it. And the same thing is when you're talking to people about their, their past, uh, tragic and traumatic pasts. If you actively listen, shut up, listen, focus, look them in the eye, or or look over their shoulder if they're being intimidated by you looking at them, you soon learn. You listen, you hear, and when you hear, you remember. Right, and then you race high and write it all down. <laughs> exactly, yeah, This is the remember bit that I struggle. No, I'm not with. that good, folks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about where it all started. You mentioned working in a, in a trauma, you know, in, in a trauma hospital and, and dealing with with patients with those issues. But as I understand it, your storytelling career, as it were, started when you and your husband started creating stories for your children. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, gosh, many moons ago, and we were so poor. We uh, we were a classic case of having this baby and now down to one in calm and trying to find the many ways you can cook mince, <laughs> and we wanted this this little fella to be able to have stories. Look, my husband used to read him the Financial Times. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I think the theory plays out that when they're particularly little, really little uh, newborns, it doesn't matter. What you're reading to them. It's the sound of your voice. And it used to kick me up sometimes. I'm, I'd be in another room and I'd hear him say, so, and today the Dow has dropped 50 points, you know, this sort of stuff. Uh, and, and there'd be this little thing in his arms, just silently, quietly, eyes wide open, listening. But um, so we then got a little bit more adventurous as he suddenly realized that, you know, he wasn't interested in the Dow Jones. Uh, and so simple exercise books, schooled exercise book, we used to have them in New Zealand where you had one side of the, the page had lines on it and the other page was blank. I think they were meant to be for science so you could write about your experiment and then draw a picture of it. Right. So we just bought these exercise books and um, I would start writing and making up stories and Harby and went and drew the illustrations. We, we bought a talent teach to it we created a whole raft of stories uh, based around gloves, for, for instance, hand gloves because Christchurch cold winter. This kid seemed to be always losing one of his gloves, as he called it. <coughs> so where do gloves go? They go to Globland, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic.
1: And then you moved on to uh, study screenwriting. and I'm, I'm fascinated to know what you learned from screenwriting and, and, and how well, that, that-
2: was- decades later
1: right.
2: that was a classic case of getting to that age in life where you know your kids have stopped saying hey can you drive me somewhere as hey you just give me your car keys <laughs> and so you go all right well i've probably got some time on my hey do you mind if i have a little drink out of this bottle
1: go for it i probably go should have it.
2: put it in a glass but i don't have i'm in a hotel guys <laughs> 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 it's water <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and I was sort of going, oh, okay, well, I'm probably entering well into my second act, time to possibly get a little bit selfish and think about me and what do I want to do, do something different. <clears throat> uh, I already was participating in sport. Uh, I've always been active in sport. I don't look it now, but I joined veterans throwing and athletics. But I've always loved movies, and I thought, oh, all right, you now the next sort of you know, blockbuster. So yeah, I started going to the odd weekend course and doing it online. And the reason I did that, because I figured if I want to tell stories, there's no way I could be an author. I mean, I'm an awe of authors. But somebody told me that screenplays come with a formula and rules. And you do not get to deviate from those rules unless you're Quentin Tarantino. He's the only <laughs> one that does. And yeah, when I started looking at and, and and learning the structure of it. <clears throat> I went, okay, I, that works for me. So, yes, screenplays and being forced into the structure and the rigid rules of them was how I started, and that's how Luddy's story first got written. I've yes. got a draw, by the way, full of screenplays back home and just all sitting in there doing nothing.
1: I mean, will they eventually become novels? Is it something, you know, You could could you do anything with them?
2: But one or two of them I think might. Um, we've talked to my publishers and I have talked about one of them in particular. Uh, but. Yeah, they're and, and funny enough, they also have got some sort of genesis in, in a real event. You know, a, a young teenage boy in the hospital I worked, who I knew for several years, and the what he he yeah, his illness, how it affected in the most beautiful and positive way. He he had terminal cancer. But because of this kid and who he was, he had an impact on everyone who met him not only the people in the hospital who got to know him, but one other particular young man who came into his life. Uh, So there's a beautiful story about him. Um, The Melbourne Olympic Games, 1956. I discovered the man who was the head of security for those 56 Olympic Games and after bullying him for months and months, harassing him, Finally, got him to talk to me and tell me about the lies, the spies, and the murders that went on oh, during yeah. the six Olympic Games that have been literally covered up by the government.
1: Yeah, wow. Okay, <laughs> they sound fantastic. Let's. Um, you mentioned Lale there, Lale Sokolov. Uh, I know you've told this story many, many times, but it's such a good story, and I think it bears repeating. And it is inspirational stuff. But as I understand it, the the tattooist of Auschwitz came about because you had coffee with a friend. Is that how it all started? Yep,
2: Just like I had lunch with this friend who was the cousin of Nesta. i got to stop having our lunch and coffee, don't I? I've not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, um, yeah, I caught up with a friend and over coffee, she just really casually said to me, oh, I've got a friend whose mother's just died, and I go, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, His father's looking for somebody to tell a story to. And I go, uh-huh. Well, do you want to meet her? I said, well, why? She said, because he wants to tell a story to somebody. I said, can't he tell it to you? And uh, she said, no, because he wants someone who's not Jewish, and you're not Jewish. And I said, what's the story? And she still didn't know. And I went, oh, well, never mind. Yes, I'd like to meet him. So, yes, a week later I met him. And so began this third act, as i now putting my life in, um, of uh, writing books and living the dream.
1: Now, what's remarkable is that he did insist that his story about being the, uh, he didn't call himself a tattooist, he was a numberer, wasn't he? He put the numbers. Yeah, I made the numbers. Um, he, yeah. he just
2: said I made the numbers.
1: Yeah. Um, and he insisted that it be written by non-Jewish right and we live in an age now where you know there's talk of cultural appropriation is this your mm. story to tell that kind of thing uh, and i appreciate that someone who's from you know new zealand and australia there's you know very aware of telling stories of people from indigenous backgrounds or what have oh, yeah. you so was was there any was there any trepidation about telling your story it was or was that kind of that blessing that he gave you did that did that help in a way
2: I never, for a moment, once it became serious that I was going to tell his story, even though that was back in 19, oh, 2005, 2006, uh, had any concerns about that for the very simple reason he asked me to do it. Mm. How can I be appropriating his story mm-hmm. when he's giving it to me? And so now I'll fight that argument any day of the week, and mm-hmm. I have to had to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will not shy away from being having no issue with the fact that Lully asked me to write his story and I did. And uh, there should be no issue with me being able to tell it the story of a Jewish man uh, without having the background mm-hmm. and the his family history. That's what worked for him. And for him, there was not a Jewish person alive who didn't have their own baggage, their own mm-hmm. backstory. Mm-hmm. He said, why would they tell my story when they've got their own? Fair enough. Keep talking.
1: (laughs) And as I understand it, it was going to be a screenplay first. Was that your original intention?
2: I wrote what I considered to be the most brilliant two-hour feature film based on his life. I still have got the screenplay, the script. So, yeah, for me, um, I saw it being played out on a screen and uh, that's why it was a screenplay and why I hung on to it I'm not sure if it was stupid in the end to have hung on so long or maybe the timing was just right. For for 12 years, I was trying to get it made and put into the hands of a producer or a production company. I actually did have it optioned for six years at one point.
0: Wow.
2: A production company in Australia optioned it and tried to get it made and it didn't come about. But... um, I kept fighting, and you know why I kept fighting, Mark? But for me, there was just never, ever was I going to give up. Because I was with Lully two hours before he died, and I knew that he wasn't going to see the sun come up the next day, like he used to say to me every time I saw him. If the sun comes up, it's a good day. Or if you see the sun come up, it's a good day. And I knew this evening as I sat with him that that wasn't going to happen. And the very last thing I said to him, and I kissed him goodbye and told him, it's time to be with Gita. His son had been with him. His son had gone away for a couple of hours to give me the only other person he would allow to see his dad, to have the the precious time with him. And uh, the last words I said to him, I will never, ever stop trying to tell your story. You trusted me. I've got it. I'll keep trying. So wow. that's why I keep trying. <laughs> I to a man who did not see the sun come up the next day.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, was this still a screenplay at that point, or were you working on it as a
2: novel? Just a screenplay. And Lully had read many, many drafts of it. And he'd driven me crazy taking him to movies, <laughs> trying to find the perfect person to play him. <laughs> <laughs> he kept rejecting every fine young actor that he'd become besotted by it. Um, but uh, yeah, so he read that. And so when people question me, how can you write this story when and have it out there in the world? And he's not here to confirm it and to support it. Well, he saw many drafts of the screenplay, and the novel is my adaptation of that screenplay. yeah, so yes, he's absolutely approved it. And he was alive when the production company in Melbourne were trying to have it made into a film there and was involved with them and flirted with the producer's wife. Um, (laughs) So I have no qualms that Bloody Sokolov wanted me to tell his story. Wonderful. And we've come full
1: circle because it's been adapted for the screen and Mm -hmm. it's starring Harvey Keitel as Mm -hmm. the older Lale, which is fantastic casting. Uh, And you're being played by Melanie Linsky, which yeah. is it's just amazing. So can you talk about that and how involved you were in, in that as well?
2: Yeah, gosh, how much cringing can a girl do? Um, <laughs> quite a lot, it seems. Look, <laughs> you know, the, um, the, the wonderful production company, Synchronicity, who optioned the rights to make the film and brought Sky on board and NBC Peacock on board. I spent a, they spent a lot of time with their screenwriter. They're their main screenwriter who was wanting to get more background. Yeah, they needed to now flesh out on the screen uh, Lully's character. And so I'm just telling them all about my time with them, you know, all these wonderful three years I had with him. And then a few months went past and I got a call from the producer saying to me that um, we want to talk to you about how we tell the story. You know, we need your permission to tell it away. We've been drafting, unbeknownst to you, and having the character of old laddie telling the story. And I went, oh, that's brilliant. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, and then they threw in the clangor, and, of course, we'll have to have somebody playing you. <laughs> so we tried to talk away. Well, you know, can't he just talk at the wall? Uh, no, they needed that foil of uh, Melanie Linsky to play me. So... Look, they've done it beautifully, Mark. It's not going to be overpowering for those who love the book. The book is still being told. Yes. It's just every, you know, through each of the episodes, um, Lully will come into, old Lully. Harvey is incredible. My gosh, he's nailed this performance. Maybe he nails them all. But he he comes in and starts talking about the vignette that, or the episode you're about to see or the storyline. And uh, and then it just feeds into it, and often it comes back out to him too in seeing his reaction to what he's just been talking about supposedly. Right. Um, uh, I, Yeah, I think they've done a pretty damn good job on how they've now treated the story.
1: Brilliant. And you've got a young actor called Jonah Howard King, who people may have seen in The Little Mermaid playing the young Laleh. Do you, yeah. he have, do you think you would you think you would have approved of him?
2: <laughs> oh, the, the number of times I heard Lally say, I was a good looking boy, you get me a good looking boy. <laughs> he wanted Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling to play him. They're good looking boys. So they are good looking boys and uh Jonah is a pretty good looking boy. He is, he's a Disney prince, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, the, he um he went to some extraordinary lengths. Uh, to To look the part. He lost a lot of weight and he had no weight to lose. And with his hair head fully shaven, uh, his portrayal of, of young Lully is just brilliant. And the beautiful actress from Poland, Anna Prozniak, she is getter to a T. Right. And, uh, you know, we've scored in a couple of other areas. Oh, my gosh. The actor playing Bereczki, this bad, naughty German, is this really bad, naughty German actor, uh, Jonas Ney, who can send chills down your spine with just a smirk, folks. Um, <laughs> but I adore him. And, yeah, the, the actress who plays Silka, she is the granddaughter of the most famous Israeli actor, Topol. Oh, right. This is her first acting performance in any kind of production. And she's wonderful. But then we've topped the whole thing off, folks, with a score that is being written by the one and the only, at the top of the tree, the, the man, Hans Zimmer.
1: Oh, fantastic. I saw him live earlier this year. He's astonishing. Oh, He's really? Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, I can't wait. I genuinely can't wait. Um, but until then, folks, we've got Sisters Under the Rising Sun uh and many other books as well. What's um what's coming next from you, Heather? Are you are you sort of is is there anything new on the horizon?
2: Um I'm trying to choose between three incredible stories. Uh we kind of narrowed it to two, but uh yeah, it, it's hard. Heather, How do you choose when you've got so many wonderful stories and wonderful people in different parts of the world who are sharing them with you. Uh, but uh, rest assured, I don't have time to rest on my laurels, guys. Our third act, <laughs> approaching end of. They'll be coming, coming out as quick and as fast as I can.
1: Brilliant. Well, we can't wait. You're an inspiration, Heather. Thanks so much for
0: speaking to us today and hope to speak oh, to you again my, soon.
2: My pleasure. My absolute pleasure.
0: Oh, I think I have to take a little moment there, Mark. After yeah, that, do, that, do, do, do. that was um, powerful stuff, wasn't it? Absolutely. But what an incredible, I mean, a credible story on top of an incredible story.
1: Mm. It's, it's remarkable stuff. If you watch the video, you'll see when she's talking about that last night with Lale. you can see me welling up and getting all emotional. Yeah. After which I asked the most vapid question. <laughs> I just, my mind was just so, and I was like, is it going to be a book or a film or something? Some nonsense question. I was just so, the power of that, that last night that she spent with him and that promise, you know, to, uh, to, to, to finish, finish the book. And it's just, it's extraordinary stuff. Really extraordinary stuff.
0: It's absolutely, absolutely incredible. And so many different things to, to talk about. I think, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll go on, we'll talk later a bit about that experience of being with someone as they're dying, you know, somebody that you've been, learning about their story and going through that process, which is just makes everything so much more um, incredible and and meaningful as well. But Mm. let's let's start at the beginning where Heather was talking about this incredible serendipity that happened where she met someone who knew the third cousin of Nesta just by go when we talk about dream declarations about this idea that you have to put it out into the world of what you want to achieve because when you do that people show up to help you whereas if you keep it secret you don't tell anyone about the book you're writing or you know or anything you're doing you're never allowing other people to come into your story to help you and this is a brilliant example of of heather being very open like talking talking about what she was looking for and and then having having this opportunity to find someone absolutely crucial to the story.
1: Yeah, and she's a she's a listener. And I think this is such an essential skill for authors and uh you know she, and I, I do recommend that that book that she's written Listen Well. The, the, it talks all about the role that listening has played in her life and I think we when we do sort of the, when we have a book published We have to talk about ourselves and talk about our book, and it's all we're pushing stuff out. But I think the best authors are also really good listeners. They know when to shut up and listen to someone's story, and even if it's not something they're going to go on and adapt and turn into, you know, a phenomenon you'll pick up stuff just from listening to people just from you know the the little quirks that they they give you the the stories that they tell you you just have to become a sponge for that kind of thing and uh i mean you know we i remember when we had erica james on here she said that her talking about how her sons get so embarrassed because you know <laughs> she'll be earwigging people on the holiday you know just picking yeah. up stories picking up little things about people's lives so whatever genre you're writing in if you're writing, you know romance or thrillers or comedy or whatever it is uh i think it's essential just to stop and listen and take it in and just enjoy that human experience of of how people are different it's and and also if it's particularly if it's outside your experience if it's someone you might disagree with if it's because it very often as well we're all very confrontational these days social media has turned us into confrontational people when you meet someone as a, an opinion that's contradictory to yours i find the best thing is just to let them go for it mm-hmm. you know they because they soon run out of fuel uh, <laughs> but you know you just you just it's that thing of putting yourself in someone else's shoes that's what i think storytelling it's so much of storytelling is about it's it's your voice it's telling your story but also you need to put yourself in other people's shoes as well
0: yeah and it's interesting isn't it because i think there's a lot of people who think of research as just i say just it's a big job but just going on on google and 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 researching going and looking at web pages going into archives i mean that's obviously a massive part of it Mm -hmm. but that's information that's all been published in whatever form it's been published. Whereas when you actually go and speak to someone, you might be getting, well, first you're getting a very intimate first person account or even second person account, depending on you know, whether you're interviewing the person directly or a family member, but you're getting something completely unique. And within that are often nuggets which come up and prompt you with, with um, ideas that you can then run with. And I think, I think authors that are just researching purely on what, what's out there already, you know, you're going and you're kind of delving through, you know, the encyclopedias that everyone else has got. Whereas talking to people gives you something special, unique. It might actually even become the story in the case, in case mm. of Heather's um, experience. And I mean, even more, I think back to back to reality. And we, I remember you interviewed, you, you know, you went out and you found people you wanted to get, I remember you sat with a, uh, a healthcare specialist, uh, was mm-hmm. it a doctor, a surgeon, yeah. Uh, yeah. asking about how certain things work, so we could get that right in the book. And then you, talk, you spoke to someone who was a uh, who, who drove the old buses, <laughs> an old yeah, bus, so driver bus driver that, yeah. that could tell us about the bus that we were writing about in that in that yeah. book. And and you know the richness of those conversations i felt really came through in those in those parts of the book which and they wouldn't have been the same if it had just been like looking at you know google told us about no absolutely
1: i mean for the for the holly king um i there's a character in that that comes back from the war and they're suffering from what we would call ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder and I did research, I looked things up, you know, I read a few books, but it's not the same. And I, I found a couple of, you know, former soldiers who suffered with it, who were willing to talk to me. And it made such a difference, such a difference. And, um, you know, their their generosity in being able to share that with me, uh, it's it's one of the things people talk about in, in reviews of the book. It's It's been, it's made all the difference. Yeah. It's really worth doing. And uh, I mean, people kind of poo poo the idea of sensitivity readers and blah 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 that all that is is just listening to other people and hearing their story that's all it is it's hearing it's without it it's just you wading in and you're going to get it wrong you're going to you're going to have an idea but until you talk to people and listen to them and get and get their uh get their story and get their thoughts you know it it doesn't have that 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 extra layer that makes all the difference i don't think
0: would you agree with this idea that like one hour conversation with someone is worth 50 hours of trawling the internet for articles and books? Well, I'd have to check your sums there, Mr. But, um, <laughs> no, I'm just thinking like just in terms of a ratio, has... it's got to be more valuable per hour of time yeah. spent.
1: Yeah. And without, without question. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's the stuff you don't know you're looking for that, that is the frosting on the cake. It's it's the thing that go. Oh, by the way, did you know this? It's like no, I didn't even know that was a thing. That's the stuff that makes all the difference that that goes in, and it's those little little bits of serendipity. It's those little yeah. things that you didn't know that you needed uh, that make all the difference.
0: Which is and why it's it's worth being a good listener. Absolutely, and and it's a good a good point to question as to whether if Heather hadn't pursued that route. To find a subject would whatever book she ended up writing been as successful as, as it as it was. It's mm. uh, you know I think I'm, I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, now yeah. she also mentioned as well that a lot of parents are going to I think really <laughs> connect with this this idea that she started off kind of writing stories with her husband uh, for their kids, which yeah. I think is even for people that have always been interested in writing. I mean I bet you there's a lot of parents listening to this right now who. Uh, in the throes of you know youngsters and busy life and no time to sit and write even 200 words a day but maybe they're telling bed making up bedtime stories which is something i used to do every single night i'm sure you probably did it as well you make up characters make up stories and more out of desperation just to get the kids to to, to lie still in bed and ho- hopefully drop off asleep at some point but yeah. i i never did
1: I never did, but mainly it's because I was writing my own stuff. I was like, I, you know, I'm not giving you this for free kids, you know,
0: let's read some some Julia Donaldson instead, you know. (laughs) I I used to, I used to do this thing, Mark, where I used to get the kids in bed. I had, they had bunk beds because they were quite, my two eldest were quite similar in age. So, uh, and and the hardest thing, every parent will know this, the hardest thing to do is just to get the kids to settle down. Because they're so, it's like they brush their teeth and put on their jammies and then, and then it's like, it's like they, they disappear somewhere and it appears like they've just drunk a whole litre of Coca-Cola and then they <laughs> start running around the house and it's like, we come out of the bath and they're all, ex- and it's like, dude, it's like, just calm down, get to bed. So I used to do this thing where I used to, um, I used to d- double up, talk about self-care. I used to get them in bed. I'd make sure they were lying down. I'd turn off the light so it was complete darkness. I would then lie on my back so I'd just, like, chill out, like kind of in a yoga position, and then (laughs) I would tell them a story. And I'd sometimes be there for, like, 30 minutes. And I'd keep pausing and waiting to hear a question. And if I didn't get a question, I knew they'd both fallen asleep. So on the one hand, my stories were that bad that they fell asleep. (laughs) But at the same time... (laughs) At the same time, it was it was such a lovely bonding experience. And even today they talk about, oh, whatever happened to and And they would always add things. Oh, can you do this? And I'd sometimes ask them to add things in. Um, I mean, it's not the same. You can get that with ChatGTP now where you can, like, create, create no, stories with the, the kids' names. It's, yeah, about, it's about
1: making that connection. I mean, we've had a few authors who've, who've done that that thing of um, – but, yeah, I could, I could never – I was always too knackered at the end of the day. I mean, I yeah. – we would read to the kids all every night, absolutely, brilliant. and uh, we loved it, and it was brilliant. And I always did the voices, and I still think my version of the Gruffalo is unparalleled. Frankly, so that's what I one. want to hear. Because the Gruffalo in... was
0: a big one in our house as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 managed to get impersonations of Michael Caine and Sean Connery into that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> did the snake yeah. and the owl and all the others have voices as well? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah yeah yeah, probably, yeah, 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 yeah. I forget which one was which, but. Um, but that was great. And then I remember reading, um, it was Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book, which Ooh, yeah. uh, I remember getting to the final page with George and actually choking up because the ending, it's, it's so emotional, the ending, it's so, such Isn't impact. It? And we're both sitting there, sort of sitting in numbed silence at the
0: end of it. It's a great, great book. One of his best. Yeah. But from that from that experience of just telling stories, again, it, it almost felt like she... um. Heather talked about this idea of a second act of parenting when the kids become more independent, you know, that kind of like mid-teen where they tend to want to kind of hang out with their own friends. They don't want bedtime stories anymore. No, they don't exactly. even want hugs half of them now. They don't no. even want any kind of physical kind. like oh, come on. <laughs> but um, the interesting thing is, is that I think in some ways that experience that she had telling stories with the children probably played a huge part because then she talked about once they became independent, she then thought, right, I can reclaim a bit of my, my own life back now, my non-parenting, right. And that's when she like started learning, like decided, right, I'm going to take a course. I'm going to, I'm going to delve into this. And I'm wondering again, would that have happened if she hadn't have kind of had that experience of telling stories with kids? It's so interesting to think about all these different sliding doors that, that, you know, come about. But again, it was a course that led her down this route yep. of, of wanting to then write. Yeah, the screenwriting,
1: screenplays come with a formula, which I uh, don't necessarily agree with. I think there are more Quentin Tarantinos than formulaic screenwriters. I think, I mean, oh gosh, we could do a whole hour on that alone. But um, but yeah, it's uh, that, that thing of understanding structure, I guess, comes from that as well. Screenplay is, you know, if you study screenplays, they tend to focus on structure
0: and, and, and that yeah. kind of thing. For me, it's not, and it's not so we've learned on this podcast as well. It's it's never about formulas, but it's also about creating mm. structure for you to play within. It's like knowing, mm. creating the playground and being able to play within it and being infinitely creative within the playground. But there's a fence around it. So you've, you're yeah. not just running around like a, like a crazy kid, like going, where are the boundaries, where are the boundaries? I think that, <laughs> that helps us just to kind of keep things contained. I actually saw, true story, um, I saw Peter Gabriel in concert last weekend oh wow oh it's wow birthday that was and, and that was crazy because peter Gabriel is 73 years old now gosh which yeah. is mind-blowing and i kind of had this real sadness it was weird i had this real sadness uh he was playing one of his really beautiful songs um um blood of eden i think it was called uh that right. he sang with i think it was with Schneider connor yeah. and um of course there's a whole link to that and what happened Mm. with Sinead recently passing away which is really sad but but there was a sadness around this idea of of him you know whether I would it was the first time I got to see him in concert and I'm wondering if it might be the last time because the last time he 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 released something was 20 years ago but to keep on track with the why I brought this in I'm actually going to tell you about my weekend but um (laughs) he talked about when he created an album um he he did cover versions of his 12 favorite songs from his favorite art, living artists, but he approached them and he said, and do you want to cover your favorite song of mine? And they put out this double album and in the, um, in the notes, the, the linear notes, he said it was one of the most freeing projects he'd ever done doing these cover versions because he said it was literally having this structure. He knew you know, what the lyrics were. He didn't have to write those. He knew what the structure of the song was. Yeah, he could have artistic license to make it Peter Gabriel's version, but he said it was so nice just to not be in this big empty field and go, right, what do I do next? It's a bit yeah, like yeah. the blank page, right? With the yeah. writer's like, right, blank page. I've got an infinite number of options. So I think this idea of reducing, putting, putting um, barriers or borders around what you're going to be playing in is really important. But then he said, but I could be infinitely creative, within that space of that one cover track that I did. So I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Absolutely.
1: And I think that I mean, he- 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 Heather was saying that, you know, with Sisters Under the Rising Sun, there were hundreds of women. She could have told their stories, but she decided to focus on these particular ones because she was like, that's it. That's my story. That's my, that's the path I'm going to take. And it is, it would be, you know, research, could say well what about these people over here what aren't their stories just as valid this yeah they are they absolutely are but you have to pick a lane and kind of stick with it and that's um that can often be a difficult decision to make but i think once sometimes when you know it's the right one you kind of think yeah this feels right this feels good i feel this is there's there's something about this that uh i engage with and it resonates with me so um yeah there's a lot to be said for that definitely
0: and stuff now as it's our seventh birthday we thought it would be really fun to let you all listen to the extended version of the podcast this week so you can get a feel as to what what you've been missing out on all these months and years <laughs> so in the extended we are going to talk about how working on a memoir can become a, an incredible story in its own right we're going to also talk about the importance of self-care within research. This is the other side of listening. It's when you come out of a traumatic conversation with someone and how you have to work through all of those sides of things. We're going to talk about writing emotions, which is probably one of the most important things we can learn as writers, and also about how Heather's motivation was absolutely taken to the fullest extent when she was working with Lale, and he passed away while she was writing his story. So, Mark, let's dive straight in. Let's talk about this idea of memoirs. Because when when Heather really kind of went into this, I don't think she was really expecting to find the story that she did. And it made me think about everyone who's thinking of writing memoirs and the stories of their life, how from that, even just one section of their life story could become an incredible book, a fiction book even based on a true story. And it makes me wonder, I wonder how many times this is actually, you know, a story has been plucked out of a memoir and then become, you know, a major novel, a massive movie. It must, must happen relatively often, I'm guessing.
1: Well, look, let's, let's define terms first, because you've you got a biography or autobiography is when you write your own story. Biography is when someone else writes about your whole life story. Memoir is when you focus on a particular portion of someone's life mm. so i've just been set because I, I, i'm i'm doing an interview uh next month with um uh, uh leslie ann jones who's written a book called Fly Away, paul which is about paul mccartney in wings so he's left the beatles and it's the whole period when everyone thought it was going to be a complete disaster so that's a memoir that's focusing on one particular aspect or one particular period of their lives and yes for most people we we lead ordinary lives but there might be that year when everything changed that that time when we faced some incredible challenge that we had to overcome, uh you know so that that can be extraordinary, and that ties into that whole thing of storytelling, which is when you're writing it's fiction or if it's a memoir you're, you're talking about that time when everything changed, so in fiction, you're telling the story of your hero. Who uh, suddenly that they start in the ordinary world, and by the end of it, they're the complete opposite of who they were to start with. That's that is that is storytelling. So, um, so yeah, it's. Uh, every, I think everyone has some kind of story. Some of them are, are extremely dramatic, and you know, obviously with Lale Sokolov, that is one of the most extraordinary stories of the 20th century. You know, being at the the heart of you know Auschwitz and and what he must have seen and experienced is, is just incredible. Other people, they might be a bit more mundane, but it can still shake up your world. I mean, it's this idea, we talk about the idea of stakes, you know, uh, in storytelling. And stakes can be an asteroid is coming down to destroy the world, or it can be that you have to have a difficult conversation with your mother at the weekend. Mm. You know, that that might be the most important thing in your life. or So uh, it's all relative to the character who's telling the story. So I think when you're drafting a memoir, drafting a, a piece of fiction. Think about why this, why now? This is the big question we are Why now? Why are we telling the story now? Why are we telling it about this particular piece of, uh, this moment in time? What is, it, what is it about that that's so important that you're going to draw
0: readers towards it as well? Mm. And there's something something that you've mentioned called life rights and options. How do those work? Oh, crikey. Right. <laughs>
1: This is not legal advice, everyone. Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I'm just curious what, what they
0: are. I'm just
1: curious what they are. Okay, well, it's uh, if if this happens a lot uh, when people are writing memoirs and particularly in film as well, because again, talk about stakes. When uh, when you're you know, if you're writing the story about your granddad and and how he worked on the railways and everything, and it's a nice book just for the family, that's fine. If you're writing something you know, about someone that you don't know and you're telling their story, then you might want to get their life rights, uh, particularly if it's being turned into a film. You don't have to, um, but a life rights agreement, it grants a person or a company the right to purchase and develop someone's, someone else's life story in some form of media. And getting permission to tell another person's story is important uh because everyone has the right to tell their own story uh why do you need to do it well you don't have to do it this is the thing you don't have to do it and if someone is in the public if you wanted to tell the story of joe biden or donald trump or you know uh whoever's prime minister whenever this goes out (laughs) you know because they're a public figure you could do that you could do that absolutely and if they're dead totally up for grabs, you know? Mm. Um, but uh, basically, if you get the life rights, that person is on board with your project. And of course, it decreases the possibility of a lawsuit and them suing you or whatever. They, mm. They've basically come on board. So, take legal advice, get an entertainment lawyer, you know, if, if that's yeah. what it needs. So, uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's how that works. Now, let's talk about self-care within research because obviously... I mean, there are people, a lot of people writing books about quite obviously very traumatic events that can happen, either events in their life or in the case of Heather sitting with someone and learning about their story in such an incredible level of detail with access to to the kind of raw stories that come from people's hearts. And it's interesting that Heather came from a self-care Kind of counselling, you know, healthcare background because Mm. you do need to have a degree of self-care as an interviewer, as an author, if you're really going deep into that story. Because you obviously have to be affected by it; otherwise, there'd be no emotion in your story, and. It's it's an interesting one that I think a lot of people, when they go into this, you sometimes don't know what you're going into. You don't know if you just sit down with even, um, you know, a retired person in your own village and they tell you something about their past, which just blows you away or just completely like you know, heart in the mouth stuff. We have to learn about self-care from our perspective when we're doing those kind of interviews. Otherwise, we can. And I think actually, part of it is writing it out, isn't it? In some in some ways, actually, writing the story is a kind of way of of allowing it to kind of make sense of it and and work with it. Yeah, it's that making that separation between
1: that trauma and being an emotionally stable person. And uh, you know, she said her num- number one lesson was self care. Shut up and listen. Um, mm. But it, even if you're not interviewing someone who's been through a traumatic episode say if you're writing crime fiction particularly if it's sort of gritty crime i know crime authors who have been to autopsies you know or they've seen those autopsy photo books that you can get mm-hmm. uh, for research you know medical uh, research books or what have you um you, you know if you're writing about Abuse or or addiction or any of these you know really difficult challenging subjects it can really take its toll Uh, so you you have to um, again you will know your tolerances for these kind of things you will know how far is too far but uh, self-care your own self-care should be your number one priority but yeah I've you know I've researched stuff and you stumble across stuff and you think whoa that's a bit much, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, and there are times when actually it's years and years and years ago. I think I've spoken about this before on the podcast. I I interviewed um, a mother and her son. Her son had Tourette's, and it was something I was interested in in writing about. And having spoken to them, I realised not only was I not well equipped enough to write about it. But everything I knew about it was wrong to the point where I'd have to completely restructure this. And I kind of thought I I, that, I, I was so glad I did it because it stopped me from going down the wrong path and getting something completely wrong. Um, so sometimes it, you, it will illuminate you in a way that might make you think, oh, yeah, I'm, I shouldn't be writing this. Or I, I don't have the equipment. I don't have the emotional connection or the armory to to sort of actually do this so um so yeah it's uh you will know and and it, it makes this is again why you know we we talked earlier about sitting in here and looking stuff on google and you're at one removed from all of that and it's there on a screen or whatever but when you actually talk to people when you look someone in the eye you realize oh it, they could they're going to read this and other people are going to read this uh so i i need to get this right uh and so you I mean coming back to the, the self-care thing as an author, you need to reconcile with that, and again, mm. if if it's a bit too much, then maybe step away, maybe you know take another path. Um, I mean, I think it pays to be bold. I think and we'll talk in a minute about writing emotion in fiction, but mm. um you will know your own tolerances and and you'll know when to stop, but uh it can it can be really, really tough.
0: And it's also about knowing your limits as well. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I was I was watching a show with my daughter the other day, which is one of these kind of like nine one one emergency. It was a drama. It wasn't wasn't real, but it was based on. I mean, everything that was happening in there could happen in real life, and it was just mm. one disaster after another, and it was heart wrenching. And my daughter yeah. was loving it, and I was sitting there. And I literally, we <laughs> got through. We got through one and a half. Episodes and I turned to her and I said, I can't watch any more of this. I I can't. I was literally, I felt so emotionally beaten up. And I I actually said to her, Why don't we watch a zombie flick? Because, like, (laughs) having zombies eating people, that's not real. I can handle that. But watching someone, like, sitting on the edge of a bridge or falling from a roller coaster, or uh, oh, there was, oh, it was awful. There was, seriously uh, (laughs) there was one should this come with a warning (laughs) (laughs) well i hope i should have done i've never seen this before but i mean i I hope this isn't based on a true story but it was about a teenage girl that had a pregnancy and she she i don't know how old she was but and her, her she lived with her dad and her dad convinced her not to keep the baby and they flushed the baby down the toilet, oh. and the the person in the flat below heard this crying coming from behind oh, the wall. And the God. I know, right? And they came in, and they actually then this baby was stuck in a in this drain pipe. And I was just sitting there going, I can't, I can't do this, but. And it was that level of type of story. And I just thought, so you need to know and I know I know from my own personal experience in life, especially in the last few years, my tolerance for real life trauma has been greatly reduced because yeah. you know. But even, even,
1: even in fiction, I watched um I rewatched Don't Look Now recently, the Nicholas Rogue film with Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie. And it's it's still an absolute classic. It's, it is a traumatizing film because it opens. the drowning of their daughter she falls in a pond and drowns now when i was a teenager lapping up horror movies oh that's very sad bring it on yeah yeah, when you're a parent (sighs) it's like that is your worst Worst nightmare and it it has
0: this whole other resonance with you so yeah it's uh so you need to know what you're letting yourself in for it takes a certain kind of person to to bring out those stories and it takes a certain kind of person to be able to then write those stories, which Heather did. Um, but it also goes now to, uh, back to like how you write with emotion as well. I mean, cause you, if you tell nice a story, segue. nice segue, but <laughs> if you tell a story and it's just very kind of factual, well, I you know. Yeah. It's, it's just lacking 90, yeah. it's lacking yeah, yeah. 90% of, of, why you're doing it. So so tell us a little bit about writing emotion. Well I want to talk about writing emotions
1: in fiction, but also at the same time eliciting an emotional response from your readers. And it's a really, really tricky part of the writing process because it's it's first of all, it's tough to do. And it's it's tough to do without falling back on Lots of well-used tropes and cliches. You know, if someone's happy, they've got a spring in their step, but they're sad. A single tear rolled down her cheek. Uh, You know, fear his heart was thumping in his chest. I wrote that today. Uh, And, you know, there's nothing wrong with these. Tropes are good, uh, but you don't necessarily should reach for the first thing that comes along. Um, One little top tip is to think about form and style when you're writing. So if someone is angry use short snippy language keep it short and snappy you know the, the way that, if they're relaxed then the prose can be relaxed too if they're head over heels in love the prose can be dreamy and delirious you know so think about the form the way you're writing Now that can change from pov to bov and depending on the tone of, of that particular moment uh so things to consider when you're writing emotion uh, think about the physicality of it so much communication is non-verbal which you know if someone's acting or in theatre, that's that's easy to convey because you're looking at it. When you're writing a novel, you could miss a lot of this stuff. So think about the physicality of a character. And you can tell a lot about a character, about the way they carry themselves. So don't just tell me that someone is angry. Show me their hands bunched into fists. Show me their flinty eyes. Uh, show them smashing stuff up, you know. Uh, dig into your own emotional memory as well. So maybe when you experience extreme emotions... Keep a journal. I remember a couple, a couple of years ago, I went into hospital with a kidney stone. Agony. Absolutely. I remember agony. that. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. But, but the writer in me is going this is great this is great emotional memory for when I'm in, for writing about someone in pain remember, remember this, this. Pain. exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly that. it's got kind of a sick twisted person you become when you oh. write a story so yeah, yeah um, you know maybe keep a journal maybe write these things down because you never know another really um, good book if you're in a hurry as well is The Emotional Thesaurus um, Chris you remember Christopher Wills in the Academy he introduced Jake. me to this this Brilliant. is a cracking little book and it's that, just yeah. it just lists you know oh euphoria okay it's Gives you look, these are all kind of first base. It's all a bit first, but it gives if you're in a hurry, it's always good placeholders, and then you can dig a bit deeper, you know. Um, so think about not just the physicality, think about the internal things as well. You know, the rapid pulse grinding their teeth if they're angry, these are all angry examples. Uh, mental response, you know, responses they 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 might not be listening to anyone, they they could be fantasizing about violence, uh. Is the emotion suppressed as well? Maybe they're not trying to show anything. So the deep breaths, set jaw, they're they're avoiding eye contact. Now, in all of these, I never tell you that the character is angry. I let you, the reader, pick up on those signals. You add two plus two as the reader, and then you're engaged. It's a great way to engage readers. Also, ask yourself, is this is this going to escalate or de-escalate? Where are you going to go with this? And, you know... Uh, be careful of um, where it comes in the overall stories where well, you don't necessarily want to peak too soon. Um, some stories start with a devastating event, and that can be a great way to hook in the reader. I remember years ago reading The Horse Whisperer, and the first chapter or couple of chapters starts with such an incredibly traumatic event. Um, and you do wonder, gosh, how are they going to recover from this but that's what the whole book is about recovering from that trauma now if if you're not careful it can come across as a cheap way to elicit emotion you do need to earn an emotional response from your reader so how do you do that well this is going to sound flippant but the best way to elicit an emotional response in your reader is to write a compelling story with a character that's engaging and relatable we've spent seven years talking about this (laughs) stuff. easier said than done but if you take the time. Now here's the thing, if you take the time to consider the kind of reaction you want from your reader. And not enough authors do this. We we kind of think, "Oh, I'm going to write a story and it's going to be about this." Think about what you the reaction you want from the reader. So, do you want them thrilled? Do you want them in tears? Do you want them terrified? If you give a more consideration to that, then you're much more likely to succeed in getting that response. You know, I used to think that emotion wasn't my job, that it was somehow cheating to, to lay it on. And it's up to the reader if they want to feel that or not. And yes, there is a risk that if it's insincere, then it becomes maybe over sentimental and the reader sees through it. But if it's coming from a truthful place, this can make your writing incredibly powerful. Readers read for emotion. So you've got to give it to them in
0: spades. Brilliant. Excellent stuff. And as a writer, you've got to feel it when you write it, I think, as well, don't you? To some extent. If, I opinions mean, divided about- on that. Opinions well, divided. I mean, I,
1: I, know, I know method writers who were, and I've written stuff that's made me well up. Yeah. I, I'm, I think Sarah Pimbrell was on a panel recently and she was like, nope, don't
0: feel it at all. But, you know, <laughs> she's but but that's probably because she, she's, know, I mean, but, but I guess all, there's also, it's like a surgeon, I think. The more you do the operation, yes, the easier yeah, and the, the more yeah, you maybe, detach yeah. yourself from the fact that you're opening up someone's body. And But I think <laughs> as you're kind of getting into it, if you're not feeling the emotion, it's then I was. Always, always wonder yeah. how, how a reader's going to feel the emotion if you can't feel it. Mm. It's a bit like if you don't believe in your book, why should anyone else believe in your book? Yes, it's so the same that, kind of yeah, idea, yeah. but fantastic, brilliant stuff. Yeah, emotion is so so massively key. And the final bit we're going to talk about is is also linked to emotion as well. It's the it's the emotional journey that Heather went through when writing The Tattooist of Auschwitz because little did she know, I think really when she got into this project how it would like morph into this incredible story and then that uh Le- Lale Sokolov was basically going through the final days of his oh, life. Yeah. And, and so I feel that there's this sense of, she had a such a deep emotional connection. And she said, I am never going to give up on, on getting this story out there. And she gave this promise almost to him. And it became more than just writing a book. It became a personal mission for Heather to make sure that she honored his story and his life by making sure it got out there. And that's an incredible emotional connection that you get as an author. And I think I experienced something very, very similar when when I was sitting with Jen in in palliative care. And and for people that don't know, that was my wife um, who passed away five years from cancer, if you're new to the podcast. Um, And I promised her that I would get her children's book out into the world. And it was that living with someone in their final days makes something so much bigger Um, than just you know publishing a book it was it was more about fulfilling a legacy for someone and i think heather must have experienced this incredible sense of um, responsibility and motivation and i'm sure the, the the push that she had was led to the success of the book as well because there was so much at stake for her Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to kind of, as you go into these scenarios where you you find someone with an amazing story or, you know, you, and you're living with their life with them in some extent, and you get to kind of get to know them intimately as Heather did with It it makes the whole writing project so much more important. And sometimes I think that's what we need as writers. Sometimes maybe we just don't have that thing to keep us going. And as Heather said, she was never going to give up. Um, and it well, was just incredible. I mean, we we talk about accountability
1: on this podcast a lot. And very often we're making a promise to ourselves. Exactly. Um, which but here It's easier making, to break. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But here Heather's making the ultimate promise, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's powerful it's
0: stuff, isn't it? Really, really is. Really yeah. is. Yeah. But wow, Happy ending. I mean... Obviously, the success of the book, you know, the, I mean, again, we always, we always talk about this in the bestseller experiment. Yes, it's nice to get a bestseller, but actually what you're doing is you're, you know, six, seven million plus readers that have read that story. That story has had an effect on a huge number of people that like you can't read a book like that and not take it with you for the rest of your life and maybe no. change how you see the world a bit. And that's the power of the bestseller. It's the effect of the number of people that your book has which is the, the privilege in some ways of anyone who has a million selling plus book and then and well then for, i mean,
1: a, the thing, we, we, you
0: know it's called the bestseller
1: experiment and we've often joked you know sometimes it's uh you know bestseller can be a dirty word or whatever or it's too commercial blah 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 um but the, the fact is you hear people, authors will say, "Oh, well, I, I don't care about sales. I just want people to read it and enjoy it." Well, unless you sell a few copies, they're not yeah. going to read it or enjoy exactly. it. Exactly. So, and, it comes with and if you're exactly, if you're telling a story like Lale's, then you really do want people to read it and, you know, and take it on board. I mean. You know, we look at what's going on in the world at the moment. You know, you need to hear these stories. It's yeah. so, so important. So, it yes, the, the fact is yeah. exactly. The fact that this has been a massive bestseller and has affected so many people and opened their eyes to this man's extraordinary story. Uh, as with – you know, as with – I mean, this is the thing. Let's not – you know, this isn't Heather's only book. Uh, a lot of people are going to read Sisters Under the Rising Sun and go, I had no idea. There were women in prison of war camps in Japan. So I, I know. I mean, she said when they came back from the war, they were essentially oh, told, "Sorry, you don't get that hero's welcome."
0: I couldn't Sorry, believe that girls back I, to work. I could not the believe kitchens. that. It yeah. just, it so, just, it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to forget oh, yeah, that that yeah. was the reality of the world that people lived in back then, mm-hmm. and it shows that we've made progress, but not enough. Yeah. But it's just incredible. So folks this is we're really getting to the core here of what it is to be an author and that you know <laughs> after 7 years <laughs> <laughs> exactly maybe we've suddenly found out but but it is it's something about there's something there there's something about this idea of writing being on a mission when you write writing with purpose writing something that means something that will change someone's life that will change the way people look at the world that will give us a greater perspective on our own position in the world and also teach us how we can make a difference through someone else's story and example. And I think these are, this is what it's about. It's it's about life at its very core. It is, but you don't have to write about the Holocaust
1: or POW camps. You can write about a murder mystery. You can write about dragons. You can write about people exploring the depths of space. And all of these stories are about, the human story, the human existence, uh, the experience. They can all give us different perspectives on what it is to be a human. And that's what storytelling is. Yeah, You're right. I think powerful. we have finally cracked it after so simple- We
0: have. <laughs> God, it took us a while, didn't it? Oh, well, thank I'm a slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> but brilliant. Really, we just want to say a big thank you again to Heather Morris for being on the podcast yes. with us. And we want to wish her every success with the amazing TV series that's coming out, Hans Zimmer yeah, soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, hello, I'm, I'm sold on that alone. I'll just listen to the soundtrack. Well. <laughs> <But> Harvey Keitel <laughs> is coming out on Sky, yeah. we think, in the UK, NBC in America. This is it just the, the, the story continues. It continues yeah. to grow. It continues to spread. And, it, and more people are going to be brought to the book as a result yeah. of seeing screenplays. So absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much, Heather, for bringing us that incredible story. And we are... We cannot wait to see what happens next with the new book and with the TV series as well. So brilliant. Well, folks, that's the end of the extended. We hope you enjoyed it. You can see it's a little bit of a different flavor. Um, but if you enjoyed that, we've got tons of extendeds that you can you can get. If you go to um, our website, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, you can get the extendeds of all the episodes we've done previously with extendeds. And it it's And we were thinking as it's our seventh birthday, maybe, maybe that could be your birthday present to us. If you've not yet signed up to become a patron, maybe that would be your present to us, uh, which we would greatly appreciate um, because it absolutely helps uh, hugely with the uh, increased running costs of the podcast and like. So thank you so much for spending the time. And now, Mark, as always, let's talk about the wins and what's going on in socials this week. Okay, let's start with Gavin Ralph. Uh, Gavin,
1: uh, great member in the BXP group on on Facebook, says, I have a winter share. An author friend and I shared a store for our first in-person event. Now, Gavin is an Antipodean as well. He's on the other side of the world in New Zealand. He said it was at the Rainbow Fair with all sorts of fantastic LGBTQ plus creators, products and services represented. They also had stunning drag performances throughout the day to keep everyone entertained. It was exhausting and energising and so much fun. We sold way more books than we'd expected, which was amazing. But a major highlight for me was meeting a teacher from a local secondary school who came up to say hi. She said she was looking forward to reading Murder on Milverton Square. That's Gavin's novel there. But hadn't had a chance yet because there was a waiting list for it at her school library. How good is that? that's another milestone that's another brilliant milestone and do check out get Gavin's really good on Instagram and Facebook there's loads of photos from I'll stick a link in the show notes loads of photos from this amazing uh, event fantastic. at the Rainbow Fair uh, and it just seems like such a brilliant event but yeah that thing of just getting a table and yeah. you know talking to your readers it's fantastic um, i got three bits of social media here and they've all got something in common I just want, want to see if you can see the <laughs> common denominator first one's from the Academy the wonderful alex weight on the academy alex says a small win for me uh, but after listening to the recent podcast with jesse sutanto uh, who who writes in 15 minute sprints throughout the day uh so alex said I, I gave that a go but set it to 30 minutes the idea being the pressure is off if i write 20 words so be it just so long as i give it 30 minutes of 100 percent dedicated focus and amazingly and she's and Alex says he can hear us saying, I told you so. It worked incredibly well. He ended up getting through closer to 750 words for each writing session, but it feels relaxing as he's not chasing a word count. He's made it his new writing habit moving forward. And yes, he has bought himself a new egg timer too. So that's that's Alex.
0: That's brilliant.
1: This is Sarah Moorhead, the brilliant Sarah Moorhead who was on a few weeks ago uh, with uh, her new book, The Treatment. Uh, Sarah, she said... I've had to revert to the Pomodoro method as I've been lacking discipline. Writing a 100,000-word novel is so much easier when you break it down into 25-minute chunks. And a day later, she updated it. She said... It's working. I've got more work done in the last two hours than I have all week. So there you go. So that's that's Sarah uh, over on the BXP group. And then on Twitter, we've got Denzel Edwards, who is at Denzel E. Author. He does the 200 words a day challenge. He said, I gave the Jesse Sutanto 15 minute timer method, as mentioned on the podcast, to spin this morning, 364 words in 15 minutes amazing brilliant so can you see the common thread there mr yeah well, let me i'm just i've just <laughs> written
0: them all down there i can't quite work it out but it's interesting because we we've talked very early on in the podcasts you know i was talking about the pomodoro method it's something that i use every day in my in my work life just getting all the tasks done for the podcast and for coaching and all the academy stuff and and it really does work and so tying these two things together we we always talked about the Chandra word challenge being a 15 to 20 minute challenge. So mm. there's that kind of timing element where, but I think what it does is it it gives us a sense to, of being able to focus because that's one of the hardest things we have. So it's so easy to get distracted and when you've got so so alex's reference to the egg timer came from a coaching session we did actually right, just, just so, a couple yeah. of weeks ago where i got all of my i've got them all here actually i've got i've got hundreds of them loads i've got these blocks <laughs> got, i got one of these and i got one of these little eggies with a little ticky thing and there's a whole science behind the noise of something um that keeps you focused on the job and i think it's it's super good to have to combine the two um incredibly powerful because um it gives you a bit of a sense of mission impossible like you know is this this uh, this word document will explode in 15 minutes if there's no words on it so yeah i think we'll uh, we'll will incorporate that into the challenge word challenge so that people want a time a race against the clock then absolutely i think that's a Brilliant thing. So well done to all of all three of you and everyone else out there who's been inspired by that as well. Yes. Thanks Fantastic. everyone for
1: get, for getting in touch. Uh you can find us on social media on Facebook, we're bestseller experiment. On Twitter, Instagram, and Threads, we are at bestseller XP. And if you've been inspired by Heather or Jesse or any of the authors we've had on over the seven years, uh please subscribe, rate, review wherever you get your podcasts. And a big thanks as always to our editors, David and JD
0: absolutely and if you'd like to try the 200 word challenge it's 200wordchallenge.com and if you'd like to sign up to bestseller experiment newsletter just pop over to the website bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter tab and you will be added to our list where we'll send you all the details of every episode that we do and all the things you can learn from it as links to all the show notes and everything else you need so fantastic have a great week mr stay and it's a goodbye from mark one And goodbye from Hulk 2.
1: Goodbye!